Hey, and welcome to the Scientist Podcast. Today, I'm talking to Melissa Cristina Marquez. She, professionally speaking, is a number of things. She's an author, TV presenter, and science communicator. Most excitingly, though, I'm sure you'll agree, she's a shark scientist. I know, pretty cool. First things first, though, Melissa, welcome to the podcast. How's it going? It's going well. Thank you so much for having me. No, well, thank you for being here. How's everything in the world of Australia? It's good. It's hot since it's summer, so I'm enjoying that. Um, but otherwise, it's good. So I have to ask straight off the bat. I read today that you were bitten by a crocodile on the Discovery Channel. There's sort of a yeah. couple of different things to pick apart there. What happened? Yeah, so I was filming for Discovery Channel for Shark Week. And during our dive towards the end, we have like these special masks that we wear in order for us to like record our voices and stuff like that. And mine just kind of stopped working. And we were diving at night in the mangroves looking for a hammerhead shark, specifically at that time, just because they do hunt at night. And we thought maybe they had gone into the mangroves to hunt one of their favorite foods, which is stingrays. Uh, We didn't see any hammerhead sharks, but we did come across an American crocodile. And after we filmed a little bit with it, it kind of left the vicinity. And that's when my mask started acting up. So usually when you scuba dive normally and you don't have these masks that allow you to talk to one another, you usually use hand signals. And so my buddy, my dive safety instructor and buddy next to me signaled that the dive was over. We were going up and I was like, okay, cool. And he was to my left and came up almost like across from me. And so if I went up at the same time as he did my face would have hit his fins. So I waited a little bit. And in those few seconds, the crocodile kind of had, I guess, come around and ended up running into my leg, bit my leg and started dragging me backwards. So it hurt (laughs) a little bit, but it wasn't like the full force, you know, crocodiles and alligators have some of the strongest jaw forces on our planet. And what it was doing is something very similar to what sharks do, which is called an exploratory bite. So trying to figure out if I was food or not. Food or friends. Yeah, exactly. Does adrenaline just kick in? I've never been bitten by a crocodile before. Yeah, you know what? Most people haven't. It did. You know, it was really funny because when I talked to people about it, my mind kind of slowed down and I almost started going through like a checklist being like, all right, I've got enough oxygen. If I have to be underwater for a little bit, it should be fine. Don't move your leg because if you do it, it'll bite down harder. It might do one of the infamous crocodile spins or crocodile death rolls in a way that it incapacitates its prey. And I was like, don't do that because you'd be a bit screwed. Started looking around the floor for maybe like a rock or a mangrove branch to like hold on to. And yeah, it was very, analytical what happened to my brain. And I think it's not that rare because I had quite a few other friends who have been in a similar situation, not so much with a crocodile, but with other animals. And they've also said that their mind kind of slows down. So it's really interesting to see that, you know, you've got fight, flight, and in a way almost act dead and think rationally about it. Yeah. I mean, being stuck between a shark and a crocodile kind of illuminates the phrase between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about sharks. Sharks have a PR problem, as far as I'm concerned. You know, it's uncontroversial to suggest that when people think of sharks, they think of big, scary animals. They would probably fancy eating them if they had the misfortune to surf into their path. But that's unfair, right? Sharks actually don't really eat people at any rates particularly worth talking about. 
Yeah. So, you know, it is a big misconception and a lot of people do kind of mention sharks as these man eaters or these mindless killers. And that's just not true. There's actually over 500 different species of sharks and very few of them have interactions with humans where it leads to a human being bit. You're more likely to get squished by a vending machine or have someone in New York bite you than you are of ever getting bit by a shark. But of course, because it is such a traumatic event and you know, now we have these things called smartphones where everyone can whip it out and record such an event. One shark attack or one fatal shark incident can be recorded millions of times and then be sent around the world to be watched billions of times. So it might seem as if, you know, we're constantly being attacked by sharks, but that's just not the case. God, they can't get a break. In the 70s, you have Jaws. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just to back up before I forget, when you're doing the Discovery Channel, That's a massive gig. Are you conscious of the cameras while you're doing the science? I mean, you know, the cameras are kind of in your face and whatnot. You kind of just learn to tune them out after a little bit and get on with the job. You get to see some really cool action with some sharks and whatnot. You do forget that the cameras are there. You're just in the moment of like, oh my God, I'm getting to witness this. This is so cool. How did you get into sharks originally? Do you know what? Funnily enough, it was Shark Week. When I moved from Mexico to the States, it was during summertime and I was quite young. So my parents kind of just sat me in front of the TV and they were like, there, go watch a few hours while we unpack. And that was the first time I had like free reign of the TV and so many channels and happened to come across the Discovery Channel. And the first thing I remember was a great white shark breaching or like jumping out of the water in pursuit of a seal. And after that, I was hooked. I was like, that's it. That's what I want to study. Um, and, you know, my parents thought it was a phase. They're like, right, she's watched it on TV. That's what she wants to do. She'll grow out of it. And I guess I'm in that phase still like 20 years on. <laughs> It's just a phase. It's coming to an end. <laughs> it's a very long phase. The next thing I'm going to get into is guppies. It's part of the appeal of sharks, the fact that they are quite powerful and can be quite scary. But also, like, you know, they're quite a sensitive animal, I always feel, sharks. Yeah, it's one of those things where I think they're really misunderstood. And for me, they're probably one of the most misunderstood creatures out there. And again, you know, there's that diversity in the family. There's over 500 different species. But most people, when you think of shark, you think of bull shark, hammerhead, great white tiger shark, which don't get me wrong, they're beautiful animals, but they look quite scary. They can be quite scary. You show them something smaller and cuter, like an epaulette shark or a Port Jackson shark. And they're like, wait, that's the same terrifying animal. And you're like, yeah, they're the same species, technically. You know, they're still sharks. And it starts making people think about them a little bit differently. Yeah. And then what people say is, no, but it's not really a shark. Thus confirming the suspicion that the key variable that makes something a shark is the scariness rather than the technically a shark. Your TED Talk was brilliant, and I recommend it to anybody listening. You mentioned the female sharks can occasionally reproduce asexually. Now, if, like me, you only have a rough idea of biology, you tend to think of asexual reproduction as being something that singular-celled organisms do. How come there have been cases of female sharks reproducing asexually? It's really interesting because it's only been happening in a few species that we know of. And in sharks, asexual reproduction occurs when a female's egg is fertilized by an adjacent cell, which is known as a polar body, essentially. It contains the female's genetic material as well. And that leads to essentially really extreme inbreeding. So it is kind of just like a copy of 
the mom. In some shark species, it's a little bit different in that they can actually store sperm for really long periods of time. So if they don't see a male for a bit, they're like, right, I'll just do this myself. And they'll kind of inseminate themselves with the stored sperm and then create babies that way as well. And is that an evolutionary thing that some species have achieved that others haven't quite yet? Do you know what? We're just starting to get to the tip of the iceberg when it comes to reproductive methods of sharks, really understanding them. So this is one kind of extreme thing that we've seen for some species. We don't know if it's available for all species yet. We just haven't seen it in all species. But the few species that we have seen it yet, it's really exciting. When evolution does that kind of thing, I think it makes non-scientists who aren't usually so excited by minor changes in evolution sit up and go, whoa, that's really cool. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's cool because it's not just sharks that do that. You know, there's a few vertebrate species that also do this. Some rays do it. Snakes, I think turkeys and also Komodo dragons are up there. So, you know, it's a very interesting long list of animals that can asexually reproduce like this. At the risk of this being a really silly question, if a shark asexually reproduces, does that mean the personality of the offspring is likely to be similar to the mum on the basis that personality is decided by the same kind of genetics? It could very well be. It could be also a thing of nature versus nurture. With sharks and their personalities, it's interesting because we're just starting to kind of get into that whole behavioral aspect of sharks and understanding that a lot of people, again, they've got this misconception of sharks being these lone hunters that just have killing on their mind. And New research refutes that. You know, there's new research that shows that some of them hang out in social groups. Some of them have friends where they only want to hang out with a certain shark and will chill with that shark for a few years. So we're just starting to get to know sharks and their personality, which I think is cool. Right, because we famously don't know the ocean that well, as far as humans go. You know, we know some surfaces of the moon better than we know the ocean. I think that's like 5% of the ocean has only really been fully mapped and really investigated. And we know more about our moon and we know more about some planets than we do our own ocean. Does that extend to our knowledge of sharks? Are they a particularly well or not very well understood animal relative to dogs? Oh yeah, definitely. I think we know more about dogs than we know about sharks. There's this whole entire list that's called the IUCN list, essentially, and it lists all the threatened species and species around the world. It gives you a little bit of bio of them. And for the over 500 different species of sharks, about 40% of them are data deficient. That means we don't know enough of them to be able to rate their extinction threat. That to me is really alarming that we don't know enough about 40% of our sharks to be able to say, right, they're in danger or not, or we know about them ecologically, biologically speaking and whatnot. We've got really big gaps for some of them, even for the famous ones, such as like great whites or whale sharks. We still have a ton of mysteries surrounding those animals. Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned extinction there because sharks have been around in basically their form for how many millions of years? Millions. They're older than trees. (laughs) Is that just because they're super successful in terms of evolution? Yeah, you know what? Evolution knew what it was doing when it was coming up with sharks. (laughs) They're really good predators, really good hunters. They've found their niche and they kind of thrive in that niche. They're really hardy. I want to talk about your TED Talk a little bit more. I mean, you compared being a woman in STEM to being a female shark, and that sounds like it's about to be a fun comparison, but it's not. It was actually incredibly hard-hitting. Where were the grounds for comparison? Ah, do you know what? It was one of those things where, and I kind of go into it into the TED Talk where I was like, 
there's such really cool stuff that female sharks can do, such as that asexual reproduction, such as a lot of the female big sharks that we see. I mean, they're huge and they're usually called males on TV, but females tend to be the bigger ones for sharks in general. And I was like, you know, I feel like they're not getting their due credit. And in the same vein, a lot of female shark scientists aren't getting their due credit. The American Elasmobranch Society, which is probably the biggest organization or the biggest society for practicing shark scientists, more than half of that is female. And yet on TV, we don't get to see that. You know, if you only watched the TV and you saw the news, it would seem like most shark scientists are males. And that's just not the case. I'm a really big proponent of representation matters. And so I kind of went out there saying the case for female sharks are really cool. You should focus on this kind of stuff. But also the female shark scientists who study them are really cool. You should give them their due because they're doing some really cool science that you're just not hearing about. Yeah, on that note, what is Fins United? So Fins United is a program that I created a few years back now, and it was in response to me living in Sarasota Bay during my undergrad and realizing that a lot of people, even though they utilized Sarasota Bay as like grounds for fun, they didn't really realize that there were sharks in their backyard. And so it was me kind of going around to the schools letting kids know of the sharks and the rays in their backyard and why they should care about them. And that kind of grew as I moved around. So every time I went home from uni, I did classes there. And then those teachers told their teacher friends and it kind of just ended up growing. So it went from being a local tiny little thing to a huge international thing where now I'm doing talks in like Pakistan and India and Hong Kong, Africa, here in Australia. So it's definitely really grown and it's allowed me to kind of help be a PR manager for sharks and change people's <laughs> opinions of them from a young age. I mean, that's a dream gig, PR manager it was, for sharks. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> Do you remember what a shark bait shot is? Of a what? A shark bait shot. No. See, this is, yeah, I thought this might be oh, tricky. Oh, yes. <laughs> if it's what I think you're saying, yes, I know what a shark bait shot is. Is that when quite a lot of us in our heyday to get, in a way, almost initiated into being a shark scientist, you take a shot of the bait, <laughs> you end up chumming the area with, usually we call it a chum shot. I've only known a few people who have done that. I was not brave enough to do a chum shot. I tried to do like maybe half of one and I ended up spewing it all back up. <laughs> That's actually a much better answer than I was wanting. I was talking about What are you talking about? It's so much less exciting now. I don't know if you even know, on the Fins United website, I was having a play and there's a drinking game section. Oh, <laughs> yes, that's true. Oh my God, that's from a few years back. Yeah. Yeah, there is some games there for you to watch and play with during Shark Week and Shark Fest that if you drink alcohol or even if you just want to drink water and be really hydrated, you will get that. I can't leave the other thing alone, though. Tell me more about that. <laughs> you know what? I don't even know if people do it anymore, but I know that a few years back when you're chumming for sharks <laughs> and there's no sharks nearby... Depending your crew, sometimes someone's like, oh, I'll bet you to like take a shot of the chum. And it's known now as a chum shot. Some people do it. Some people don't. Some people try and fail like me. <laughs> it's real what's, gross. What's in chum? What is chum? So chum essentially is like ground up fish and fish guts and blood. It's 
as disgusting as it sounds. And it smells just as bad. It's really oily, but that's the kind of stuff that some sharks are attracted to. So that's why we use it as an attractant. It's disgusting. <laughs> Zero out of 10 recommend. Okay, would not recommend to a friend. <laughs> no, no, would not recommend to a friend at all. The research you produce is only as good as the way you communicate it. Scientist Studio is an exciting science communication company that brings your research to life through a variety of services. From as little as £59, a summary of your work can be narrated, illustrated and animated, leaving you with an engaging video to share with the world. If that wasn't enough, as a podcast listener, you can get 10% off any Scientist Studio service using the code PODCAST when you order. Simply head to our website or find us on Twitter to get started. I know that you also study shark relatives, so to speak, like stingrays, etc. How biologically close are the two? Do they have shared evolutionary histories? Oh God, going into the evolution of it. So essentially sharks, think of them almost as cousins. Chondrichthians is the whole entire kind of group of sharks, skates, rays, and chimeras. Whereas elasmobranchs are sharks, skates, and rays. So they're almost like a subset of that. But yeah, they stem from a common ancestral group, essentially. So interesting. But I mean, they are such different sizes, right? Yeah, they're different sizes and they look different. A lot of people like to say that skates and rays are flat sharks in a way, <laughs> but they do look different. They have different roles in the environment as well. Sometimes they're not as terrifically high up as a shark, but yeah, they're just as beautiful and just as important. In terms of ecosystems and food chains, etc., if sharks have been so consistently around and so consistently top of the food chain, would sharks going extinct presumably be massively disruptive? Do you know what? It really depends on the species. We are already starting to see the reduction of some shark populations having impacts on the surrounding ecosystem or the surrounding habitat. But just how big of a wave it would cause, the amount of disruption isn't fully known and understood just yet. You know, we're just starting to kind of realize how important and how varying the roles of sharks are in their respective ecosystems. You know, if a shark is an apex predator in its ecosystem, yeah, it would probably be really, really disruptive. If, say, in like a coral reef or something like that, the shark isn't the top level predator, but it is one of the top level predators, the removal of that shark might not be as damaging, but it will still cause some changes in that ecosystem. Oh, interesting. So the level of disruption in the ecosystem is linked to where the predator or where the predator will prey for that matter is in terms of the food chain. Yeah, a lot of people think that all sharks are apex predators. In ecology and biology, apex predators actually a very specific definition and not all sharks actually fall under that definition. In fact, quite a lot of them fall under mesopredator, which is like a step down. If they're the second predator, so not the apex, presumably they're not being threatened by the apex. I'm imagining the sharks consider each other friends, not food. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. There's quite a lot of sharks that will eat one another. Yeah, there's species of sharks that will eat other species of sharks, eat their own species of sharks, eat rays. For example, with that hammerhead and that stingray example I used earlier. I don't know if sharks would consider each other friends. You know, for some species, there is safety in numbers. But I think very much if it came down to it, they can eat one another and they have no qualms about it. That's so interesting. There's something quite uncomfortable about the imagery. I had this misguided sense of sharks being slightly more fraternal 
No. Um, <laughs> Sharks, quite a lot of species, undergo something that's called intrauterine cannibalism, where it's actually in the womb, they will eat either their already developed brothers and sisters, or they'll eat the unfertilized eggs that are also in that womb as well. So... They are totally fine with eating one another. And funnily enough, if the baby shark doesn't leave the vicinity after it is born, if it's like a live birth from the mom, the mom can actually turn around and eat her own baby as well. So the platonic opposite of fraternal. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's no parental guidance or love there whatsoever that we know of so far. Again, we are just starting to really scratch the surface for shark behavior and reproduction. And so, you know, I'm saying this now in 2021 and later on in the year or a few years from now, we can find evidence of something totally different. Okay, so then given that I've already stumbled upon a couple of them, what are some of the other misconceptions about either sharks themselves or the science of sharks? I think one of the biggest misconceptions is painting them in a broad brushstroke. You know, there is such diversity in that family and what holds true for one species doesn't mean it's the same for all different species. A mako shark is very different from a guitar fish or a Port Jackson shark. They live completely opposite in different lives. And so what you need for one animal or what you know for one animal doesn't necessarily mean you know for the other animal or what is needed for the other animal. So a lot of people, when it comes to shark conservation, they kind of just want a silver bullet to help all of the animals. And it's trickier and it's more complex than that. The same exact thing with shark protection, protecting us humans from sharks. It's a very complex thing because it's not just sharks that you have to think about and their behavior. Their behavior is now changing because the environment is changing due to climate change. We're changing the environment by overfishing and reducing the numbers of what they normally eat. And some protection actions around the world are helping. And so now there's more sharks in some areas, as well as more people going into the ocean. So it's a really complex thing that a lot of people kind of want one answer to help everything. And that just doesn't exist. And I think that's probably the biggest misconception is that this is easy or that a solution is going to fix everything. And that's just not the case. Yeah, what would the global temperature rise do to sharks in terms of their behavior? I remember reading that sharks were coming closer to shore as a result of an environmental change. Does that ring true? Yeah, so there are some species that we are starting to see branch out of their normal home range, either more north, more south, a little bit more inshore. You know, we barely knew that much about shark behavior to begin with. And now the things that we commonly knew are being thrown out the window due to climate change and the havoc that we're reaping on our oceans and on our planet. So we think we know things and I don't think we know things anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, look, if you're changing the environment, you're changing quite a big variable when it comes to behavior, reproduction and the ecosystem as a whole. I have to pick you up on guitarfish. What's a guitarfish? Oh, a guitarfish is a gnarly looking animal. It's actually a ray, but it looks like a ray and a shark got smushed together. Some people said that it looked like a guitar, and so that's why it was called a guitarfish. You'll definitely have to look it up. It's a really cool animal. And I also want to talk a little bit about the hashtag that you were a big part of starting that Bill and I got behind, because that got sort of X hundred million impressions. Yeah, I think it was a million or a billion. I forget. Yeah, I read like almost a billion. 
Yeah, something like that. It was really, really high up. Essentially, I was the moderator for a Twitter rotating account. So basically what that means is this Twitter account has people come every week and talk about their work. And I was one of the people that came on for that week, or I was the person for that week. And I was talking about science communication because that is something that I do quite a lot about and how we need to make it more diverse, more inclusive, and how we need to hold people who have a really high following, such as Bill Nye, the science guy over in the States, have them be held accountable to using their platform to, in a way, pass the microphone and showcase other scientists who are minorities, who are doing work that's really important, but don't have the platform that he does. And so someone actually from that discussion came up with the hashtag Bill Meet Science Twitter. And then another one, both of these people are my friends, another person got on and introduced themselves using that hashtag. So it was a whole entire thread. So what I said, the hashtag, and then the person introducing themselves to Bill through that hashtag. And then more and more people ended up doing it. And it became so popular that Bill, for his second season, actually created a whole entire segment on his Netflix show dedicated to that hashtag and dedicated to talking to some of these scientists who introduced themselves using that hashtag. And it was really cool because, you know, I grew up watching Bill Nye. And so having him kind of like shout us out by our name was... Oh, I remember I was actually with a friend at that time and someone messaged me being like, oh, you're called out. You're called out on Netflix. We watched that part of the episode in this restaurant and I started screaming and people were just like, she okay? <laughs> yeah, I think not screaming if Bill Nye the Science Guy shouts you out. Yeah. you're not okay. Screaming <laughs> is the totally natural reaction. Yeah, it's, exactly. It, it's unbelievable and it speaks to the potential reach of social media mm. and science, et cetera. And especially if you're interested in representation, and clearly you are interested in representation, and that's such an important part of being a woman in STEM. That's an amazing thing, because it means that you could be the role model for X number of girls who otherwise wouldn't have been able to come into contact with you. Yeah, well, with the first Shark Week show that I was on, I didn't know what to expect, because, you know, being shown that I got bit by a crocodile and whatnot. I thought a lot of people were going to give me crap for that. Most people were really nice about it. So I thought I was going to get a lot of messages about that, but I actually got inundated with messages of people saying, oh my God, thank you so much. Like my daughter has just been like, oh dad, it's a brown girl with the sharks. Like I didn't know that I could do that. People saying that their sisters, their mothers, their grandmothers, their cousins were all watching me and being really inspired. That's all I wanted. You know, I grew up watching Shark Week and Shark Fest on Nat Geo and Discovery Channel. And I never saw someone who looked like me. I never saw a woman scientist. I never saw a Latina marine biologist. And so representation is so important because it allows a person to be like, right, if she can do it, I can do it. And I can go after that dream as well. That's why I am so passionate about representation. I want everyone to be able to look at whatever field it is that they're interested in and be able to see themselves in that and be like, right, I can do it and not feel like they can't because they can't see themselves in that role. So I'm very, very passionate about representation, about having science communication be accessible to all, to be diverse as well as inclusive. So not just have science communication in English, but in other languages as well for those who don't speak English or English isn't their first language. Yeah, which is your podcast, right? So you're doing a yes. podcast in Spanish. Yes, yes. I do have a podcast, Conciencia Azul, which is us talking about marine issues in Spanish. And it's showcasing Spanish-speaking marine scientists and their work that they do. 
do you find the Spanish, the, the, the Spanish scientific community, does it have the same... So, right, so obviously Bill Nye did Twitter, right? And Bill Nye got behind the hashtag, and at least in as far as I know, English Twitter for science is a big community. Does the same mm. thing exist in Spanish? I think to a lesser degree, because English has kind of become the universal science language. So if you don't know English and you're not publishing in English journals, you're not going to get anywhere is what the academic world is kind of telling us. So it's there. It's 100% there. But I think it's not as popular as the English science community. That's really interesting. So you don't necessarily have a Spanish equivalent of nature. No, no. A colleague and I actually did a paper on this last year, and I think it was the top 50 journals worldwide for like scientific publications are all English. And at the risk of this being a silly question, if you're only Spanish speaking and you publish something in Spanish, is that an easy thing to get it translated? No, I mean, it's one of those things where you'd have to get someone to translate it for you, or if you know the language, you can possibly translate it yourself. That's something I think that journals definitely should work on is being able to translate the publications that they put out, translating them in like the top five or the top 10 languages around the world. And maybe not the whole entire article, but at least the abstract and maybe the methods or the what do you call it? The results in the discussion. I think that'd be really helpful and is a great way, a step in the right direction for making science and science communication, science literacy a bit more inclusive. Yeah, it's weird actually. Like if you pick up The Economist, you're unlikely to read an article that was originally in Italian. But what you're effectively doing there is saying that, I mean, I don't know how many people speak English as a first language, but it's some fraction of the world. And you're effectively Mm. limiting the scope and the pool of potential, be it articles in The Economist or publications on sharks. You're limiting that pool by a factor of whatever. Definitely. Well, one of the things that I try to do, because I write as a contributor for Forbes, and so I'm always on like Google Scholar looking for new publications and whatnot, both in English, but because I know Spanish, I also look for those publications in Spanish. And if I find something really interesting, I reach out to the scientists and be like, hey, look, I'd really love to get your work out to a bigger audience. Do you mind me interviewing you and talking about your research? I've not gotten a no just yet, but it's my kind of way of being able to help. You know, I know two languages, it's the least I can do. Before we finish up, where do you see to the degree that you can make predictions about these things, yourself going in terms of your research in the next one, three, five years? Well, in the next one year, I'll still be doing my PhD. So I'm really excited about that and getting into the nitty gritty of the fieldwork and defending it in the next couple of years and hopefully being Dr. Marquez not too soon after that. But after that, you know, it's funny because I'm going to become a quote unquote professional in the science community, you know, finishing my degree and whatnot during the decade of ocean science, which is what the UN has kind of declared the next 10 years. So really, you know, I would be super keen on still doing shark research for an NGO, possibly maybe even for a government body and uncovering more about shark habitat use and our relationship with sharks. You know, I hope to still be writing books and showcasing different worlds to kids around the world in regards to like different natural habitats. So I've got one book coming out in February, so in less than a month, and that's showcasing Cuba 
The next one's going to be showcasing Sri Lanka. And the one after that is going to be Mexico. And if I get hopefully a few more books, it'll be other places around the world too. So bringing the world to a kid wherever they are, really. And I'd love to still be doing TV presenting as well, because I think that's a great medium of getting science information out there in a fun way, an enjoyable way. And so, yeah, I don't know where I'm going to end up, but I'm keen to figure it out. I love the variety and I think that's a brilliant place to leave it. Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Hey? Thank you so much for having me. Everyone listening, that has been a scientist podcast and that has been so much fun. We'll have links to everything Melissa does in wherever you find the podcast. So we'll see you very soon.